the book of Revelation. And our scripture reading for Revelation will be Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. And our scripture reading, beginning of verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. This is the reading of God's word. And let's pray. Father God, we, um, we ask that you teach us this morning. That we can learn from uh, your very words spoken to the angel, to the church of Smyrna that John has recorded for us. God, we ask that you would teach us. That we would see that your words to them apply to us even though our situation at present is much different than what they were experiencing. We pray that we are ready, that we heed your word. So we ask you to teach us by your spirit. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. If I say that the word polycarp or the name polycarp, would that mean anything to you? Probably, yes. Who is Polycarp? He was a martyr. Christian martyr. He was uh, born into a Christian family sometime around, we, we guess, sometime around 70 AD. So, um, kind of at the very end of the New Testament era, um, in, definitely in the first century, he was discipled by none other than the Apostle John himself, the writer of the Gospel of John, the letters of 1st and 2nd and 3rd John, and also, uh, we believe, the, the recipient of this vision in Revelation. Okay? Discipled by John himself, who was discipled by Jesus. And he ended up becoming, um, he was one of uh, John's mentors. He eventually became bishop over a church in Smyrna, the very church that Jesus is speaking to here in 90 AD. So as far as we know, he may have been one, a part of the church. He may have been in his early 20s at the time when this vision was given to John to convey to the angel of the church in Smyrna. He may have, he may have actually been there when they were reading this letter. He was uh, considered one of the early church fathers. He was a friend and colleague by, uh, of another guy named Ignatius. 
And in the middle of the the second century, uh, the first half of the second century, a wave of persecution against Christianity started to break out. It wasn't the first one. There were many kind of waves of persecution that had happened, even began in the first century. But this one was kind of severe and was getting kind of widespread. And this was under the reign of Marcus Aurelius. And by 156 AD, that wave of persecution extends to Western Asia Minor, actually reached the city of Smyrna. The authorities uh, there um, were starting to then seek out Christians and seek out the leaders of the Christian church. And the Christian church, they're kind of scattered. They left the town of Smyrna and went into the other villages. And uh, Polycarp was one of them. He was an old man at this point. He was 86 years old, and he flees into the surrounding villages. But at one point, seeing that the soldiers were coming into the village that he was in and saw kind of like, you know, running at this point was futile, futile, he um, calmly said to those he was with, God's will be done. When the soldiers came in to, uh, to come and get him, he welcomed them. He actually commanded that in the house that a a feast be prepared for the soldiers who were coming to arrest him. Um, And the soldiers, you know, what soldier isn't hungry? So they they said, okay, well, we'll feast for a little bit. And he said, and if if I wouldn't trouble you while you're feasting, may I just pray? And so he went off kind of to the other end of the house and prayed enough so that all of those who were around could hear him pray. And he made such a great appeal for um, uh, with, for the, the gospel to be shared for those who were there present would know and understand the love that God had for them. And his prayer was gracious. It went on for over an hour. The reports say it went on for, for almost two hours. And so much so that the, the soldiers actually spoke of having regretted that they had to come and take this elderly man away. Because he was such gracious and such kindness and such godliness and fervor. When they grabbed him from the village, they brought him to uh, Smyrna. And the captain of the police, a guy by the name of Herod, uh, tried to prevail upon him when he arrived. He said, why? Quote, why? What harm is there in saying Caesar is Lord? This was the, the nature of the persecution there was that the Christians refused to acknowledge the emperor worship of the day. You had to go and make an offering, a contribution, um, and to kind of say, yes, we acknowledge that Caesar is Lord. And so this captain of the guard is just appealing to him, just go through the motions. Just do it. What harm is there in saying Caesar is Lord? What harm in offering incense to the emperor? Why not save yourself? Polycarp was silent for a while, and then he finally said, I am not going to do what you counsel me. What a polite way of saying it. They ended up being very frustrated and actually pushed him off of the cart in a chariot that he was riding, injuring his leg. He stood up and he walked with as much dignity as he could uh, into the massive theater where the crowd had gathered and where this trial was ready to take place. And then the proconsul over the trial tried to persuade him saying, swear by the genius of Caesar, repent. But Polycarp refused. 
The magistrate pressed him hard again and again, saying, Swear the oath, and I will release you. Revile Christ. Polycarp said, For 86 years I have been his servant, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? Friends, suffering is a part of the Christian life. It's part of life in general, but it's clear through the New Testament. I could cite you dozens and dozens of passages that there is going to be great tribulation is going to come on Christians in order to get to the kingdom of God. That suffering for Christ is is part of the business of being a Christian. And I, I can't help but think that Polycarp, Based on his words and his actions, obviously he knew Christ and he knew the teaching about Christ uh, through the Old Testament and, and everything that was relayed to him through John. But I get the feeling when I read this story that he had heard the message of Jesus to the church in Smyrna. And so here's the main lesson of this message that Jesus gives to the church in Smyrna and is a lesson for us as well. I'll give you the main point of the, the message right off the bat. And it's this. Faithfulness to Christ rests on the foundation that Jesus is better than life. Faithfulness to Christ rests on the foundation that Jesus is far better and far more supreme than anything in this life. And I believe Polycarp knew that. I went uh, last week, kind of went through the this sevenfold pattern that you see Jesus use to address all of the churches uh, in Revelation. And it kind of follows this pattern, the description of, of Christ. And then there's a commendation. Usually begins with the phrase, I know your works. And then there's a rebuke, but I have this against you. And then uh, the solution to that rebuke or just an encouragement to keep obeying. And then there's a consequence of disobedience. He says, if not, then I will come and I will do something to you. And then it ends with a call to hear. He who has an ear to hear. Meaning this would the message to each individual church is a message to all of the churches. It's a message to us. And then there's a promise to the one who conquers. Smyrna, this letter is unique. Uh, well, it, this for the letter to Smyrna, the second one of the churches listed. And the second to last or the next to last of the churches listed to the church of Philadelphia are the only ones that do not have a rebuke. He just has a commendation for them and an encouragement to keep obeying. Makes it kind of unique among these. Uh, and so Jesus gives a description of himself, verse, uh, verse 8. To the angel of the church in Smyrna, write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Let me give you a little bit of background on the church of Smyrna. We saw where Ephesus was. It's kind of the closest to the island of Patmos where John was exiled. Smyrna is the next town north, about 35 miles north. 
A um, little bit of background to the city of Smyrna. It's an ancient city, very old city. It was destroyed in 627 BC, completely uh, leveled to the ground by the Lydians, and was actually in ruins for hundreds of years as a city. But it was rebuilt in uh, 290 BC by an officer of Alexander the Great. And uh, it's interesting that, that the historians at the time make reference to uh, that it rose from the dead. It's an interesting way of describing a city. You know, a city that was a magnificent, marvelous city for, uh, for centuries, completely destroyed to the ground, 300 years, and then they actually rebuilt it into a magnificent and beautiful uh, city. It was uh, known for being one of the more beautiful of the cities of the ancient world. It had a temple to the goddess Roma, the goddess of Rome. It was the first city anywhere to actually have a temple like that outside of Rome. It had a temple to the Roman emperor Tiberius. So it was uh, one of the capitals of the emperor worship or the imperial cult. It was actually a candidate. It was kind of like what they do for the Olympics or the World Cup. You know, cities had to lobby and make proposals for which one. There were 11 candidates. And uh, this became, uh, this was the winner. So it was kind of a capital of emperor worship. It had a significant Jewish population. Um, it had at least one synagogue, maybe even multiple synagogues. Uh, it's claimed to be the birthplace of Homer. Okay, The Greek poet, not the Simpson. Uh, the Greek poet Homer, author of the uh, Iliad and the Odyssey. It had a great deal of civic pride. And like I said, it was very beautiful. As a matter of fact, some of the coins that were minted there said, First in Asia in beauty and in size what it says on their quote their coinage and they used the image several historians i won't list them for you here um but uh, i have a couple of them here if you would want to know where to find those they list it as the crown a crown city they make reference to it as being a, a, a crown city and I, they think that most of this has to do with a little bit of the architecture here so i'll show you a little bit of pictures there of uh ancient smyrna this is the marketplace, I believe, the arched marketplace here. Um, those arches uh, still standing. I'm not sure if those were rebuilt or if those are still original. Um, again, the marketplace. Um, here is actually an inscription of one of the, the uh, arch pieces that, that they found on the ground that says, that says Mark Anthony right there. So make a little reference to Mark Anthony there. Um, I think this is where one of the, the temples was on the, the um, crest of the hill there in, in Smyrna. And um, they had lots of columns. And I, I guess the way it was situated, the historians say the way it was kind of situated on the hill, they looked like diadems of a crown. So when you looked at it, it was kind of on this hill. And then you saw all of these columns that went up and they... That's where they reference the, the, of a crown. It looks like a crown city. It looks like a crown when you're looking at it. You've got to see some of those, those arches and the headpieces and stuff there in the ruins there. Kind of, kind of get that idea, couldn't you? Now, how the church was founded there, we, we, don't, we don't really know. It's not really mentioned in Acts. It's not mentioned uh, anywhere else. It's not like Ephesus. 
uh, which is mentioned in the book of Acts. There's no biblical references to the, the city of uh, Smyrna. But um, it, it's very likely that, that both Paul and John had made journeys there. Paul was for three years in the city of Ephesus, 35 miles away. Very likely that Paul had made uh, some journeys to Smyrna to, to go and share the gospel uh, there. So this is the, a little bit of background of the, the city of Smyrna. And so Jesus comes to address them. And he says, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Again, this matches the description that Jesus, uh, that John sees of Jesus in, in chapter 1. We'll get to a little bit of how this applies directly to the Smyrna church here at the end. But here is reference to the first and last. You kind of. You, you kind of, if you're familiar with Isaiah, there's several passages in Isaiah, the latter half of Isaiah, that speak of the Messiah who was going to come as being the first and last, the king over Israel. I am the first and last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it, Isaiah says, Isaiah 44. The Lord says through Isaiah in Isaiah 44. Who is like me? Let him declare it and set it before me. Since I appointed an ancient people, let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from old and declared it? You are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. Isaiah 44. I think the reference here that Jesus gives of the first and the last is to hearken them back to the words of Isaiah. Don't fear. Fear not. I am the first and the last. Means there is no one who came before me. There is no one who's going to endure after me. And he connects this to his resurrection. I'm the one who died and came back to life. So this is the description of Jesus, and now he moves on to, to uh, acknowledge and give them a, con, a commendation for what it is that they're doing. I know your works, verse 2, your toil and your patient, uh, excuse me, verse 8, uh, verse 9, I mean. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Jesus acknowledges what he knows about them, and he does so in kind of three ways. He begins with kind of a general term of tribulation, suffering. I know that you are suffering. He mentions their poverty. Even though he says, by the way, even if you're materially poor, you're spiritually rich, like Paul wrote to the Corinthians. And then the last one, he gives a little bit more detail. He says, and the slander, or uh, more accurately, the blasphemy... Of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Putting all of this together to kind of paint a picture of what happens or what was happening for the Christians in Smyrna. We have to understand a little bit of uh, what was the relationships between Jews and Christians in the first century. Christianity is, a, is an extension of and the fulfillment of. Of all of the promises of the Old Testament. The 
disciples, Jesus, all of his disciples, the early Christians were all Jewish because they saw in Jesus the fulfillment of what the Jewish religion was all pointing to. And so in the early church, the tension that arises is uh, this gospel that was being proclaimed that Jews, by believing in Jesus, can become Christians and are part of this new people without having to become Jewish first. And so that the tension was, how do you reconcile this, this Jewish group and these Gentiles coming in? How do we make this one people of God? Well, Jesus does this by, by the Holy Spirit he puts inside of them. But tensions would kind of remain between the Jewish Christians and, and Jews and Christians who shared the same authoritative scripture, both claim the Old Testament. And so um, this kind of continued on for a little while. Now, uh, in the first century, as the emperor worship was starting to grow and develop, they started to say the Caesars are actually gods and we need to worship them. At first, it was the deceased Caesars, the ones who passed on. They had been kind of deified. Eventually, even the living ones were to be worshipped as gods. As we saw in the, the story of Polycarp. Just pay the offering. Go to the temple. Just offer the incense to the Caesars, the ones who are still living. Now, there were some religions that were kind of grandfathered in. And Judaism was one that was kind of grandfathered in. They didn't have to renounce the God of Israel, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They still were required to go and make an, a contribution or an offering. Um, and they frequently, they did. They abided by that. But they did not have to renounce the other ones. Any other new religion was not to be allowed. No new religion can be brought up and come and say, oh, by the way, we're worshiping these, you know, um, I, I worship this and Therefore, I'm exempted from doing the offerings in the imperial cult. They said, no, 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 no. <laughs> the, the, the Jews are kind of grandfathered in. And which was fine at first because Christianity was still kind of under those protections. Until, until when the persecution started issuing out, there was a kind of a schism that happened between the Jews in the synagogue. And they said, no, we have no part in the Christians they're not a part of us. And so Christians would start to now get persecuted. They were not, they did not have the exemptions of not offering something or not renouncing all of their other gods. They had to offer at the emperor worship temples. So when you put that together, you see that this is a little bit of what's happening with the church in Smyrna. They are kind of kicked out. By the, by the Jewish synagogue. They've been kind of thrown under the bus. They're saying they have no part in us. And the Christians, in loyalty to Jesus alone as Lord, would refuse to acknowledge any emperor as Lord. They just couldn't do it. Even though the pressure was very great, just offer it. Just say, just say something just do it and you'll be fine. You won't have any persecution. Sometimes that persecution was, 
was kind of political. Sometimes it was economic. So in other words, you had to go and offer the offerings of incense just to be even able to go into the marketplace. You had things that you wanted to sell in the, the marketplace there. You, there's, a, there's a price for admission. There's a price to do business. And that price was emperor, at least acknowledging emperor worship. And so that's what I think Jesus is addressing here. Because I know what's happened to you guys. I know what you've experienced. I've seen your, your tribulation. You've been outcast by your family. You've been outcasted by uh, the, the Jewish community that is there. That your political and religious liberties are now, you know, have been kind of thrown away. I, under, I understand. I've seen what's, what's going on. And I know that this has cost you something. I know this cost you money. There was an economic hardship to what was, what was taking place. And so Jesus says, I know, I know. But then he says this, verse 10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. He says, uh, by the way, I know you're suffering in tribulation. And it's actually only going to get worse before it would get better. I know what you are. I know what you have been suffering. I know what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death. And I will give you the crown of life. Some of you may be thrown into prison and tested for 10 days. Now, uh, earlier today, we talked about some Easter eggs, little things that uh, this type of literature does to point you back to uh, other parts of the Old Testament to, to give you a hint a little bit about what's going on here, right? It's kind of like, He'll say words or a color or uh, an image or a symbol or a number. And he'll say those kinds of things. Jesus will say those things. And that's code for you to understand what that's referencing. Being thrown in jail for 10 days. I'm sitting here thinking literally what. So what 10 days like. So you go in on a Tuesday and come out on a Friday. What you know what. And that the devil is doing this. What's going on here? I think being tested for 10 days it causes us to stop and think, where else have we seen that in Scripture? And what can we learn about what's happening in that other place in Scripture? Where else have we seen a testing for 10 days? I invite you to turn with me to Daniel chapter 1. And I'll be reading through here with Daniel. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. So we know where this is at now. Israel is in exile in Babylon. He came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand and some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility. Youths without blemish, 
of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them the names Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. Now, a lot of questions here about what this kind of defiling means. Is it certain kind of, is it um, not kosher food or those kinds of things? I think it has more something to do with when you're coming into the king's presence and you're allowed to feast around his table, it's an acknowledgement to him that an allegiance in some way and an allegiance to his gods, as he mentions earlier in the chapter. Daniel says, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to eat your food. I'm not going to drink that wine. Verse 9, And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king, who assigned your food and drink, for why should he see that you are worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. He goes, hey, if you don't eat these, these good foods that make you nice and big and fat, um, then you're going to look really bad and it's going to be the, the, the blame is going to be on me. Daniel says, Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, he says, what? Test your servants for 10 days. Test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. And let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who ate the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. Now, many of us probably, when we see this account in Daniel, we, we think of this as like a prescriptive diet, right? I mean, if you've heard of the Daniel diet, right? The Daniel diet, I'm going to eat just vegetables. And in the diet, you're supposed to do it for 40 days. I was like, well, why not 10? It says 10. <laughs> do it for 10 days, you know? Uh, Daniel diet. Um, but that almost completely misses the point. It's, this is a miraculous thing that's happening here. I'm going to eat vegetables and water, and I'm not going to lose weight. That's the point of the Daniel diet. It's like, watch. He goes, hey, we're going uh, to be fatter in flesh. Look at what he says, verse 14. So he listened to them as a matter and tested them for 10 days. And at the end of the 10 days, it was seen that they were in better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. And so the stewards took away the food and the wine they were to drink and gave, gave them all vegetables. Verse 17. 
For as for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all the literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all the visions and the dreams. The point here was this testing for 10 days was to point out the fact that these young men were not going to give their allegiance to the king. They were not going to acknowledge, we're not, I'm not going to eat the food at your table because that would be a tacit, a tacit acceptance of you as being divine. I won't do it. I'll, we'll work for you. I'll give you my knowledge and my wisdom and understanding. But you could test me for 10 days and God's going to do a miracle. I'll do the Daniel diet for 10 days and I'll actually get fatter. Okay? But this, the, this is... Uh, again, this is not prescriptive on what to eat. This is, a, this is a prescription on what to believe. I believe in the Lord and I give him allegiance alone. That's the point. So I think when Jesus gives these words to the church in Smyrna, he's saying, you know what? The devil is going to throw some of you in prison. You're going to be tested for 10 days. Ten days, tested, right? They're reading this and they're going, which they may even be spied upon by, you know, the authorities in the, the church there. Because they're going to be arrested. They're going to be going through difficult persecutions. What they're saying is, hey, they're, they're supposed to think, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. They're not going to eat from the king's table. We're not going to go and offer incense to Domitian. We're not going to do it. Ten days. Okay. That was the message to them. Allegiance to God and God alone. And this cost, this price of this allegiance could be very hefty. Again, you lose some political privileges, sure. You're going to lose some economic benefits. Understand you guys have lost some money. You've lost your occupations, your careers. Jesus says, I know those things. Don't fear. Remain faithful. Remain faithful to me. He even says this here. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. This is connected to the description that he introduces himself to this church, right? Remember, each church has got a description of Jesus from chapter 1 that John sees that applies uh, to them. And here, the description is the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Hey, Smyrnas, be faithful unto death. Because I died and came to life. Be faithful unto death and be faithful to me. And know that allegiance to me is greater than what you'll experience in this life. Faithfulness to Christ rests on the foundation that Jesus is better than this life. And that's what Jesus is saying to them. I am better than this life. Because I will give you the crown of life. 
You live in the city that's referred to as the crown. I will give you the crown, the true crown, which is life with me forever. You are united with me in my resurrection. And because of that, faithfulness to me, even in the face of death, means that you will live. The Smyrna church suffers, but they're called to remain faithful to Christ. Friends, the, the Christian life is, there's a cost. Jesus says there's a cost to discipleship. There's a cost to being my disciple. As a matter of fact, you know, the, the uh, soldiers and uh, kings and generals, and as they're planning to go to war, they're, they're calculating the cost, they're counting their ammunition, they're counting their men, their weaponry, the food supplies, and those kind of things. They count the cost before they t- attempt to go into war. He says, you have to make those same kind of calculations. You have to weigh that out. Because it'll cost you something. La- last week at, at our home group, we, you know, we, we talked about... Um, we talked about bloggers, you know, uh, and popular books today written by people who proclaim the name of Christian. But then when you look at what their life is like and what they write about in their blogs and what they've published in their books and what they present as Christianity, it's something that has uh, that nobody in their, our culture it would be offended by. Oh, that's a great recipe. Oh, cool. Oh, they claim to be a Christian. Oh, interesting. But then they tolerate all sorts of things that the culture accepts, but the scriptures condemn. They're very, it's very clever. It's, and it's part, of, part of me, when I were encountering these, and I, I was introduced to a new one this last week, but what you're familiar, there's lots of names of these, these types of Christians that have presented a message that the world's like, I got nothing, I got no problem with that. And I kind of, I wish I could have a conversation with some of them and ask this question. When you became a Christian, it cost you something. What did it cost you? What did it cost you? My impression from what I read is like, it didn't seem like it cost them very much. If their message is, is uh, popular and is well-received by those who aren't Christians and then they walk away not feeling any need to become a Christian, I kind of go, what? in order for you to be a Christian, what did it cost you? Where did you speak against what the culture accepts and God rejects? Where have you spoken up against that? And I came to the conclusion that many of them have just very gladly given into the compromise. If this is what it takes to be accepted by the culture, and this is what it takes as a price for admission for my, my book to be published or for me to become popular, they give into the compromise. Friends, don't give into the compromise. It's going to cost you something. Remaining faithful to Christ will cost you something. I like the story of 
uh, Rosaria Butterfield that she tells in um, her book. I forget the title of, of the book now. What's her book title? Um, um, the most, her first one, um, where she tells this story. The Unlikely Convert, right, who she's a, she's a professor of literature in Syracuse, I believe, uh, is a lesbian, um, was living with her uh, lesbian partner and comes in contact with the gospel. And so much so that God really does a miracle in her life. And she realizes what the scriptures were saying about her life were true. And she was forced to make a choice. And when she does decide that she's just, it's overwhelming, she ends up becoming a Christian and decides to follow Jesus. She almost does so kind of bitter. Like bitter that I had to, I had to say goodbye to my life. I had to turn back from all of the advocacy, advocacy I was doing for LGBTQ stuff. I had to say goodbye to my lover. And as she's in a Bible study, she asks that question to a group of the ladies that are there. What did you have to give up? And all of them, one by one, had to share what it is that it cost them to become a Christian. And she was overwhelmed by that and encouraged by that. Friends, it's going to cost us something. Cost the Smyrnans it's going to cost us. And we need to be ready. Already have, have attempts have been made to try and squeeze Christians out of the marketplace, right? Don't think that's real? Can you, can you own a cake business? Right? We're starting to see it a little bit here in this country. They're definitely seeing it in other places in the, in the world. Friends, following Christ will, will cost you something. And so the message to the, the, Smyr, the Smyrnans is the message to us. Be faithful unto death. And then you will receive life. Faithfulness to Christ rests on the foundation that Jesus is better than life. May we know this. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for these words of Jesus. And the simple and short message that you'd have, that you had for them, and that you have for us. God, we live in the comforts of, of this protections of religious liberty in our country, and yet we, we see that these under, are under assault. And God, we know that there is a testing of our faith, a testing for us, even in our comfortable setting, to compromise. To give in. To offer incense to the gods of our age. Jesus, help us by your spirit to remain faithful to you. 
Remind us that your resurrection life, being the first and the last who died and came back to life, that by union with you, we get to share that. We ask, God, that you give us, help us to have the faithfulness to not compromise. May we not eat at the king's table. We ask your help in making us to be faithful in you. And God, we we pray now for those brothers and sisters in Christ who are meeting all over the world, even now. In Syria, in South America, in China, who are under a great deal of pressure to compromise, to just give in, to acknowledge the deity and the supremacy of the state. God, we ask that you that you support them, that you encourage them, that you by your spirit will strengthen them even now to remain faithful to you so that one day we could join together with brothers and sisters all over the world who have experienced these things and that we together will all share the crown of life. God, help us to remain faithful to you, to resist compromise and to seek and to believe in and trust and count on that you are better than this life. This we pray in Jesus' holy and mighty name. And all God's people said, amen and amen. Would you stand for our closing benediction to send us on our way? My, my brothers and sisters, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship that we share in the Holy Spirit be with all of you as you go. Thank you.